Hi, everyone. I'm Mel Butcher. And I'm Michelle Redfern. And we're behind the Lead to Soar podcast. We've got a couple really fun things to share with you. And the first thing we want to share is our colleague, Susan Colantuno. She started a podcast called Be Business Savvy. Be Business Savvy. We highly recommend it. And it's a short form podcast where you hear directly from Susan. It's like having a friendly mentor in your ear. So check her out at BeBusinessSavvy.com. Over to you, Michelle. Thanks, Mel. Well, two exciting things from me, along with Be Business Savvy. Number one, The Leadership Compass. My very first book is due for release on March 26, 2024. You can find out more about The Leadership Compass, what it's all about. Of course, it'll be your ultimate guide if you're an ambitious woman leader. You can find more about that at michelleredfern.com. And hand in hand with the Leadership Compass book is the Leadership Compass boot camps. I'm going to do one boot camp a quarter for 2024 for just six women at a time. And you'll be working through in three weeks. So, yes, it's short, sharp, and high impact. All of the elements from the Leadership Compass and my 40 years of executive experience. So, you'll cover BQ, EQ, and SQ, and you will be positioned to have a career that soars. Again, you can find out about the boot camps at michelleredfern.com, leadtosoar.com, or if you can't find any of that, just drop us a line and we'll point you in the right direction. You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Hello, leaders. Thank you for joining me today. This is Mel Butcher, producer of the Lead to Soar podcast. And on this episode, I'm also your host. This is really fun for me to share because it's the first of several episodes where I'll be interviewing Michelle Redfern. And of course, you're already quite familiar with her as one of the co-founders of A Career That Soars. For this first chance I had to interview Michelle, I wanted to take a bit more of a biographical approach. I love learning about what makes people who they are, and I thought it important for all of us to get to know Michelle a bit better. We'll be diving into specific and strategic career advice more in future episodes. Michelle was so gracious in sharing her stories with us, so I'm excited for you to take a listen to her career path. And without further ado, I bring you Michelle Redfern. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have the chance to interview you. Well, it's very nice to be on this side of the interview mic as well, Mel, and I like having conversations with you, so I'm very curious and interested and excited for this one. Excellent. Okay, I want to do a deep dive tonight into your career, and so I think we should go way back to the beginning. Let's talk about your college days. So tell us about the first time that you went to college, what were you thinking What did you study and how did you decide to do it? 
So here's the thing. I didn't go to college. I I didn't even finish high school. No. So, uh, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't go to college to way, way, way down the track. So one of the things that people often say to me, what drives you? And I said, well, a whole bunch of things. But certainly I know what drove me uh, in terms of my, beyond my natural kind of drive and and need to do stuff really well was the fact that I chose to leave school at 15, much to my parents' disappointment and horror. Um, but there's a backstory around that because I, I grew up in a um, what was then quite um, a, well, a small to medium-sized town, about 15,000 people in the wheat belt in Western Australia, so on the on the beach but in the wheat belt. Midwest Western Australia, um, 400 and something kilometres away from one of the most remote capital cities in the world, Perth. And even as a young, very young person, I wanted to escape that town as quickly as I could. And my mother would say that from birth, I've been fiercely independent and fiercely, annoyingly determined. So when I make up my mind to do something, there's not a lot that stands in my way. So I'd made up my mind that I was always going to move to the big smoke. And I'd also made up my mind that if I was going to do that, I needed to be independent. And in those days, independence meant I had to drive a car, which meant I had to own a car. And I went, here I am 15 years old, by the time I get my driver's license at 17, if I'm still at school, I'm not going to have enough money to buy a car, which means I can't escape and be independent. So I don't think I actually went through quite as many of those logical um, things at the time. But <laughs> short, the shorter story is I did work experience in, in year 10 and I loved it. They loved me. They offered me a weekend job, you know, Saturday mornings. And then that turned into, would you like to come and work for us full time, which was about towards the end of year 10 or god what was it called then form three I can't remember anyway and I just went yes because I thought yeah this is my ticket this is my ticket out of here I'm going to earn money and and be out of here finally and after some persuasion with my parents as I said were like they were just so disappointed they saw me being trapped by in a small town with a small town job in a very small business and not being able to do the things that they'd brought me up to do. But what actually transpired was that I, I did get what I want. So I, I got a car, I travelled up and down the highway to Perth a lot. I then got a job in Perth when my parents moved to Perth. I moved to Perth and that kind of, which is, that, that kind of started a whole bunch of stuff. But so there was no college experience for me. But Going back to what drives me, I had imposter syndrome and we didn't know it was imposter syndrome there. I learned in my, probably in my 20s, mid to late 20s, oh, I don't have a university degree. In fact, I didn't even finish high school. So I became quite ashamed of that and didn't talk about that a lot. But I, my actions, particularly my my ambition, I had really, really, still do, very strong ambition was no doubt driven by the, the fact that I wanted to get that monkey off my back and prove that I was good irrespective of my book learning or not. So so I made an assumption there because I saw you had an MBA. I, I assumed a more traditional path, but this is amazing. So how did you do this? I mean, so I know what the process is in the States, but what did you have to do in, in Australia? So the MBA, um, I had had a couple of goes at going – to university remotely when my and my children were, were little littler at the time and 
I hated it and for an undergraduate degree. And you know what the reality was, Mel, I hadn't really worked out who I wanted to be when I grew up. And I kind of, I enrolled in one undergrad course around, um, you know, communications and something else. I, look, I, I was so bad, I can't actually remember what it was. Then I did another one that was going to be around um, political science. And whilst that was fascinating, I went, I'm never going to earn any more money with, with this. And I, I just didn't enjoy the experience. And then I was working uh, as, a, as an executive and met a woman, a, a colleague of mine, who, interestingly enough, was finishing her MBA in, in Melbourne, where, where I'm based. And she'd been a global citizen. And we just started talking this day. And I, said, I asked her about study. And I said, why did you decide to do an MBA? She said, so it was like this. I left school and I never had an undergrad. And I did all this work. And one day I decided I needed to get a, a qualification. Went, so is that so how did you do that? And anyway, so Louisa, wherever you are, you inspired me. And I went, is it really as easy as that? I can just kind of front up. And she said, oh, my God, look at you. You've got all this work experience under your belt. They would be dying to get a woman like you in the course, mainly because not many women joined MBAs at that time. And that's what I did. So I fronted up to the university and said, look, this is what I'd like to do. And they said, well, number one, you have to do an executive MBA. Number two, how quickly can we sign you up? And I said, but I don't have an undergrad. I didn't even finish high school. And they went, we don't care. Look at the experience you've got. Look at the leadership roles that you've had. How, literally, how quickly can we get you in the door? And it was quite literally a game changer, a life-changing experience for me. Not so much for the stuff I learned. Of course, I learned a whole lot, but the stuff I learned about myself. And I got that monkey off my back, which had been there my entire adult life, you're not very good. You only you left school at 15. They're going to find out one day that you're actually not very good at all. You know, that crap that we tell ourselves, that the story we tell ourselves, as Brene Brown says. Um, but the, the experience taught me that I was far cleverer than I'd ever given myself credit for, and I could, I could actually say it out loud to another person, that I was innovative and entrepreneurial which I had never considered myself to be innovative or entrepreneurial. And that despite the fact that I used to say these words out loud, which I'm so ashamed of, one day I'll be a really good COO, a really good right-hand person to a CEO. I went, really? I can be a damn CEO. I am a CEO. I'm a CEO of myself for a start. But it just it really changed my entire outlook about myself in three short years. It was, it was the best. Okay. That is amazing. And I, I want to get to this sort of moment that you've talked about before where you, where you kind of learned who you are. But before we get to that, will you give us sort of a, a career timeline? Because I know you've worked in several different industries. So will you walk us through that? Yeah. So apart from my first foray into, into, into workplaces in, in the, the small town I grew up in, once I moved to Perth, in my 20s, I essentially had, so the first part of my career, when I was at Career Start, I worked in the, the banking and finance industry briefly. So, well, when I say briefly, three or four years. And then uh, I worked at, that wasn't for me, mainly because in, in those days, and I think it's still the case, it was just really bad pay. And it was just a system of work and workplaces that I went, oh, this sucks. So I don't really like it at all. And as luck had it, 
Telstra, the major telco, then telecom uh, in Australia. My dad was working there. And as much as I'd always said, I will never follow my dad into his workplace. Guess what I did? I followed my dad. He said to me, listen, the job you've got, you hate it. What are you going to do? And I said, dad, I just want to, I don't know. I just need to do something for a couple of years to work out what am I going to be when I grow up? And I probably have to go back to school. So I probably need to save up some money. He said, listen, there's some jobs in customer service going out at, you know, in our district. Why don't you throw your hat in the ring? And of course that meant dad would get me the job, which of course I did. So I was on the phones at uh, Telstra and that I'm just going to do this for a couple of years till I figure out what I'm going to do and save up a bit of money turned into a 15-year career. (laughs) And so that was that first part of my career. And during that 15 years, I progressed from an individual contributor to a a line manager, so a supervisor, to a mid to senior manager. And I I, I ended up at senior management level and woke up one day and went, oh my God, I've been here 15 years. (laughs) How did that happen? And had a, I grew up there. I grew up as a person, you know, it was started there when I was 22 years old, left when I was, oh no, started there when I was 24, left when I was 38, something like that. Anyway, and I developed a whole bunch of stuff, including extraordinary, I had access to really great mentors and sponsors. And, and my first big career sponsor uh, and my first really big career move happened at Telstra because someone grabbed me and pulled me out of um, kind of a little bit of complacency in my comfort zone. And once I'd finished up there, I moved into a smaller but related industry. So I moved into contact centre outsourcing, uh, business process outsourcing, as we know now. I worked for an Australian company that was mid-size, around 5,000 people and worked for an amazing leader, amazing female leader. In fact, it was my first organisation where I can still say hand on heart, gender just did not come into the discussion because there was a gender balanced executive team. There was gender balance throughout the organisation. And, you know, it was it was where I really, really cut my teeth on executive management and built my executive management skills. I remember my boss, Denise Pitt, the CEO at the time, she's now CEO of, a, of another organisation here in Australia, my friend, my mentor, my sponsor, she said to me on my first day, this is going to be the best course in general management that you'll ever undertake by working here. And she was right, because I got to do everything. I got to do pricing. I got to do relationship management, people management, influencing. Um, you know, my commercial skills were just put on steroids. So our, our missing 33%, I had no idea at the time, but I was learning and being immersed in the missing 33% every single day. Once I, I left there, I, I did a, a big zig because uh, I have zigged and zagged through my career because I got an offer I couldn't refuse to go into the third-party logistics industry for a very small family-owned business. And the owners of the business, two brothers, had a relationship with me via my, my now wife. She was their CFO. And they had uh, kept saying to me, oh, you need to come and work for us. I'm going, yeah, 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 you can't afford me or whatever. And then one day they got so big, they'd had this explosive growth over a five-year period. They sat me down and just said, look, we really want you to come on board. We, we need to build processes and systems to manage our customers. We've got really big clients. We're not a little family-owned business out of the backyard anymore. We're a a national business, six huge warehouses, major multinational clients. Please come and help us. And I went, 
this is really interesting. And people said, what do you know about warehousing? I went, absolutely nothing, but I'm going to learn. And that's not why I'm going there. So I went there for a couple of years, went back to my, then I went back to business process outsourcing and worked for an organisation called Serco, so global outsourcing. Again, learned bucket loads and probably had the most dream job I've ever had managing operations for the business uh, process outsourcing outfit here in Australia. But I hit a I hit a significant glass ceiling there. And it was probably the first time that I really it was also where I met Louisa when I started my MBA, but it was it was the first time that I'd really actually bumped up and really smashed into a glass wall, a glass ceiling, a sticky floor, whatever you want to call it because my ambition was actually thwarted and it was because of my gender and because of the way I'm, I'm outspoken and, you know, I just didn't fit the mould and the culture. So I made a move after four years, went into banking, back to banking. I had three, three and a bit years there and i, I got to say, with the greatest respect to everyone still in banking, it finished me. It was the time when I was doing my MBA. I was in this culture that was just diabolically bipolar it was so good on one hand because some really great stuff but so absolutely awful and egotistical and arrogant and non-caring that I I have felt every one of my values just compromised every single day what Um, years was that during this is only in 213 to 216 and it was for me going into banking was like going Back in time, it was there were some things, as I said, the, the organization I worked for, and people will see it, they can look at it on my LinkedIn, which did so much good in so many ways. And I was involved in that. But on the other hand, that core banker culture was just so overt. I found it shocking. And a combination of that coming into my own through my MBA and this 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 self-discovery and kind of having those aha moments about, ah, this is what I'm meant to be when I grew up ended up with me doing what I'm doing now and saying goodbye corporate career hello michelleredfern.com and here I am when it comes to business strategic and financial acumen the missing 33 percent which best describes you a you have it and you demonstrate it b you have some business strategic and financial acumen but you don't consistently demonstrate it Or C, you need more business strategic and financial acumen and can't currently demonstrate it. If you're part of either of the latter two categories, B or C, our course, No Ceiling, No Walls, Inside a Career That Soars, is for you. No Ceiling, No Walls includes actionable content, a focus on concrete changes in leadership behavior, which is enriched by peer coaching and networking. Women around the globe at every level of leadership have benefited from this content. Now you can too. Check out No Ceiling, No Walls under Courses in A Career That Soars. Let's go back to these learning experiences you had. Would you say that when you were earning your MBA, was that the time that you really feel like you learned who you are and what, it, what you wanted to be when you grow up? In part, Mel, I also I, I have also done a bucket load of personal and professional development over the course of my career. Firstly, because of an organisation like Telstra, who I can, you know, frankly, never ever not thank for the experience I had there. And you know, it wasn't always a bed of roses, but 
I learned the value of learning and I learned the value of continuing professional development in that organisation. And once I'd learned how much I loved learning and how much I loved development, I just couldn't stop. And so part of of that was when I had made the big change out of Telstra and into another industry, I, I, I had a real crisis in in myself because I'd had my own brand, my own identity, so hooked into the identity and the brand of my employer for 15 years. As I said, I, I really did grow up there, that I struggled when I was no longer part of this iconic brand and feeling proud of what I did and I worked for another organisation and, as I said, where I worked for an amazing boss and what have you, but I struggled for the first six to 12 months and that resulted in me having uh, one of my many midlife crises and, um, and look, long story short, I've spoken about it very, public, uh, very publicly. I actually got sick. I, I got a really, I got quite sick with a chest infection. That spiralled into me feeling pretty awful about myself had a crash, which was, I don't know whether it was some kind of breakdown or whatever, but my doctor had a number of conversations with me. But long story short, I ended up going to a counsellor for about, I don't know, it was about 12 or 18 months. So 90 minutes a fortnight for a long, long time just to work on me. And, And that also combined with my professional development helped me discover more about me and work out what makes me tick what makes me happy, what makes me sad, what makes me nervous, what makes me anxious, how I react to stuff, why do I behave the way I behave and just extraordinarily important part. And I was 40 at the time. I was also turning 40, which was a bit of a crisis in and of itself. And then I just kept going. I kept any opportunity for me to be involved in any kind of personal professional development, I would leap at. And the MBA was part of that as well, but in on steroids, I guess. So, so I'd like to ask a personal question. Mm. Um, when did you come out and did that impact how you were making decisions in your career? Yes. So I came out around, so my wife and I have been together for 20 years. So I came out about 18 and a half years ago. We had a relationship that a few people knew about and then I got—I kind of, the people I came out to were my mum and dad because I'd been in a, a heterosexual marriage where I'd had my children. That ended, it was quite a, quite a difficult ending and after a period of time, uh, <laughs> honestly, I was just so blissfully happy with Rhonda and, but I was living on the other side of the country to my family and I thought, you know what? The world's a small place. Mum and dad are going to get wind of something before too long. And it was kind of nagging at me. So I I came out to mum and dad and they were just unbelievably good, you know, beyond good. I was nervous because you always, you know, you never want to lose the respect of the people you love most in your life. So they were cool. But then in the workplace, you know, it was kind of a, there was no ta-da, here I am, I'm now gay or I am gay or there was just there was a series of moments. Some of them were pleasant. Some of them were quite unpleasant. And I'll be honest. In fact, we were only having this. I was having this conversation with my beautiful friend Div Pillay the other day. That there are still times, and there have been times, even in the last ten years, where I have not been 
open about my relationship because of the circumstances I found myself in. So in the workplace, it was kind of a, if people asked, you know, I would sort of say things like my partner or, you know, this and, you know, and inevitably because I have children, people say, what does your husband do? (laughs) I go, well, (laughs) so I don't have a husband. I have a partner. Oh, what does he do? Well, my partner is called Rhonda and she does this. Oh, right. People go, oh, okay, cool. So, you know, coming out for, you you, you are constantly coming out. I still get it now. People go, so what does your husband do? I go, oh, I don't have one of them anymore. I have a wife. And they go, oh, God, sorry, you know. So there was the one coming out to mum and dad and then I've continually come come out since then and will continue to do so for the rest of my life like most gay people will. I'd like to ask, what do you wish people, particularly allies, knew or could understand about this process of coming out? Let me tell a story which will explain why I'm going to give you the answer. One of my other formative experiences, again, a continuing professional development experience, was when I was in, still at the bank that I was in, but I was fortunate enough to participate in uh, an executive leadership program by this guy called, uh, run by this guy called Colin, who I've subsequently caught up with and he's amazing. But he did this exercise at the start of the session and you had to go and grab a slip of paper or a card or something out of a box and you had to answer the question. And my question was, who are you called to become? And I went, Holy shamoli! I was going to swear then, sorry. Uh, holy shamoli! that's, oh, this is what I've been asking myself my entire life. You know, what am I meant to be? I'm kind of here to do something. And I decided really consciously to put my all into this course or into this experience. And I really started to think more and more and more about that question. And it is still one that I ask myself. And what I, my answer to that, and it's, it's how I, I talk about my leadership philosophy and how I talk about my leadership story and what I bring is that I'm called to become a person who helps the world rid itself of limiting beliefs and of the labels and the boxes that we feel we must put on people. So I don't, I don't want, I want allies to not rely on old tropes and old labels and old boxes to define a person. And never more than now has that, that been important. It, I, don't, I don't care who your partner is, if you're happy. You know? And people said to me, what made you become gay? <laughs> and I say, because I fell in love with someone what what made you become heterosexual uh... yeah exactly you know there, there's just you know, there's a whole other podcast and all that, those conversations and I said to someone look once I said look that the reality is when you meet someone and I said I know that, that the term soulmate is completely overused but Rhonda is my soulmate now Rhonda could have been male female a cat a dog a spider or a fly if I if you fall in love you fall in love right and I I, I kind of don't want to get into the I, I put it this way I think there's sexual identity and it's not sexual preference. I'm so strongly averse to the sexual preference. This is not a preference. Anyone who's ever fallen in love knows that I didn't choose to do this. It actually happened. So that, but who am I called to become? What I want allies to do is really think hard about, do I really need to ask that question? 
do we really even things like uh, it's interesting I, I one of my really terrific clients beautifully asked me last week about a new HR management system about the sort of questions they should be putting in that for when new employees come on board and they said you know what titles should be used why do we use titles does it matter whether I'm a miss a missus a ms uh, an mx uh you know I'm Michelle Redfern. Just send a bill to me or a, no, actually don't send the bill, send an invoice um, or pay my invoice. <laughs> uh, but send a letter to me or an email saying, hi, Michelle. You know, none of my kids' friends have ever called me Mrs. Redfern. They've called me Michelle. <sighs> I'm just Michelle. <laughs> I, I'm not a label. I'm not a box. And and I'll say, yeah, there's no one label. There's no one box that could adequately describe the complex flawed, fabulous, terrific, weird person that I am. So why would I want to do that to anyone else? That's amazing. Uh, it's, it's, and you know, when you, so that one little question that Colin asked me by his little card has really helped, helped me converge who I am and what I bring to the world. So one of those moments, you know, one of those moments of aha. This is what I'm meant to do. This is who I'm meant to be. I've heard you mention several times this importance for you of um, self-learning and professional development. So how do you try to share that with other women in particular? Like how do you encourage them as, as part of what I'm asking? In any way that I can is the short answer. There's some stuff that happens when you reach a certain stage of your life and your career, and particularly if you're a white woman. People start to respect what you say <laughs> and they take notice of you. And which is, you know, it's the wisdom of elders and all that kind of stuff. So I've now moved into this stage of my life where, well, certainly for someone your age or my daughter's age, I'm I would be viewed as an elder. It's just kind of a bit of a bittersweet thing for me to admit but um so people ask me advice women ask me advice and so I give it and that takes many forms it might be a it might be someone who tweets something and I'll reply and I you know I just want to be generous and or oh I obviously I do leadership development you and I and Susan have a career that soars I have a Facebook group I'm active on LinkedIn I do any way that I can convey a message to one woman or one million women or more that they must take care of themselves and and they've got to take care of themselves from a health perspective, financially, uh, economically, because they're different from their career perspective, because there's a hell of a lot of people that depend on women. And, and depend on most women. Let's face it, 77% of the unpaid labour in the world is done by women. So, you know, if, if yeah. women stopped doing everything right now, the whole world would be in a bit of strife. But we can't just expect women to keep on keeping on and hoping to be noticed, hoping that they'll be recognised, hoping they'll get the promotion, hoping like hell they'll be well enough but not do anything about it. So, that's a bit of the why, but how do I do it in any way possible across any medium possible? And I'm, I would never, ever put it this way, any opportunity that arises, Mel, you know, yes, I've got the, my, my businesses that I run, um, that, that, that 
this podcast, the a career that soars. I have many, many channels to get the message to women to take care of themselves so that they can reach their full potential. Tell us about how your passion in, in this realm started. So I'm assuming this wasn't what you were thinking about in, in your 20s, right? When When did you start thinking about I can help advance women and this is a priority. I struggle to work out when it actually happened. So the truth is that I've always been a very fierce women's rights advocate, even from when I was a small person, because that's the way I was brought up. And I was brought up to to challenge the status quo, uh, to be able to argue and debate and not just accept things at face value. I... I have two sisters, so I grew up in, apart from my dad, uh, obviously, but I grew up in an all-female household and and my dad used to joke, even the budgie and the cat were female, so he was on a hiding to nothing. But I was really surprised when I went into the workforce and actually not my first job. Funnily enough, I was the only woman in my first job. I was the office girl and there were 19 men who worked in this, this it was a tyre company. Um, and I did not but I was really powerful there. <laughs> I did the wages and I did the customer service. And, you know, a lot of the, the guys, they would treat me like their, you know, their sister or you know, their annoying little sister, actually. But I was actually, I had a lot of influence and a lot of power and, and I, I enjoyed it. And I also really enjoyed the company of men. So I didn't notice much then, but certainly when I started working and probably when I started moving into that mid part of my career, I suddenly started going, how come the blokes get to do stuff that I don't? Or how come that happens? Uh, Of course, once I'd had children, particularly I had my children quite young, so I was only 25 when I had my son. And I was always going to have a career come hell or high water. Now, my son is 30, to put some context into this. 30 years ago, I was asking, are you going to come back to work after the baby? Oh, right. So how are you going to manage that? Are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you can't? And blah, 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 blah. And in the end, I remember having a conversation with my then mother-in-law to say, I know you've all got these views about what I should and shouldn't be doing and you know, what would be best for the baby and finances and this. And this. But has anyone actually stopped to ask what I want? And sure, childcare costs a lot of money, which is still a problem. And sure, it's a logistical nightmare. And what, But I am really happy working. And please just let me do it. And why is my husband not having these conversations? So it started there. The fire was a little flicker and now it's a raging bushfire. But certainly as my career progressed, I think was really my mid-40s, Mel. I joined the bank uh, and, as I said, I had such a culture shock joining an organisation that was that was hierarchical, that had some some purported values or and then the actual values of the organization what what sort of behavior and what sort of people were valued and I was working in a very male well I was the only female on an executive team and I literally had a stream of women at my desk every day asking to be mentored by me asking me to help them problem solve their relationships with their managers they're giving career advice and I was good at it and I enjoyed it. But then I realised that this was becoming like I actually had a day job as well. Um, so I decided to challenge the system and challenge the process and do something to support women. And that, so I, I reckon I was probably, you know, 45 or 46 at the time. 
46, 47, I don't know, in, in my 40s that I went, hang on a minute, I thought they were going to solve this gender equality problem. And I thought they were, you know, someone, they and someone, and I suddenly realised that there isn't anyone, there is no Messiah, um, no one's coming, and if it's to be, it's up to me. So, all right, so this is what I'm going to do. So I'm going to carve out a period of my working day life to advance women. And I'm going to do that. And at the time, it was within the organisation that I was in. And it was also broader because I got very involved as a disability advocate. So I was chair of the, the disability action group at, at the organisation, sat on a diversity council, in fact, sat on the, the women's group as well. And it's it just that became such an important part of my work that I wanted it to be all my work. Because the, the days when I was involved in inclusion and advocacy and gender equality work were really good days. The days when I was doing my day job, not so much. And that's when it, and that combined with working out that I had power and influence, working out that I was actually much, much better than I thought I was because I was doing this MBA. All of those things coalesced into this is what I'm meant to do. But I didn't quite know how I was going to do it, but this is what I'm meant to do. You're listening to the Lead to Soar podcast. Remember, you can submit questions to Susan, Michelle, and Mel by visiting leadtosoar.com and clicking the appropriate link to leave a voicemail. All questions related to careers are welcome. And you can always reach out to Michelle or Mel directly inside A Career That Soars. You can also reach them at michelleredfern.com and melbutcher.com. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to Lead to Soar. Before I ask you about sort of vision for the future, is there anything in your career that we didn't talk about, but that was really influential to your development and you becoming who you are? Absolutely. And it was a man called Steve. And when I was 30 years old, I had come back to work after having my second child. He and he 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 was the big boss of of the area that I was in, and look, I was not yet reaching my full potential in the workplace. I was still working part time, so working three days a week, but I was a pain in the butt for my bosses because I was constantly agitating for things to be better. I was always taking wounded birds under my wing and saying, "Come on, this person's been treated unfairly." I wrote a letter to the really big boss of Telstra at one stage with a petition against a particular decision that had been made by local management. So I was, you know, I was uh, deeply unpopular with senior managers because I was such a pain in the neck. Anyway, Steve took me aside and I'd, I'd been doing, I think I was, yeah, I was a team, I was a supervisor by that stage and he sat me down and he goes, listen, I got some advice for you. And he said, I know you're not going to take any notice, but anyway, he said, it's time to make some decisions, my dear. 
is that you are too good uh, and too talented and have too much potential to be wasting your time doing what you're doing. He said, if I give you this job, which was a job a couple of levels up, which never, ever happens in a semi, well, then at then that stage, semi-government um, environment, I want you to, I want you to take it. And I went, ah, no, look, I've got little kids and, you know, I'm working three days a week and he's going, Michelle, this is a crossroads. I believe in you. You need to do this. He said, because other than that, you're going to be wasted and you're going to sit here and you're going to be here for the next 20 years having a nice little life and and I just and of course he he knew he he knew me he knows me so well that those were the those were my hot buttons because I I do not let like to let the grass grow under my feet I do I'm always thinking there's got to be something else there's got to be something else so he pushed a couple of hot buttons I went away and had to think about it reignited my ambition and went you know what, I've seen all of these kind of mediocre people in management. I can do is just, in fact, I'm going to do a better job than them. <laughs> um, so I did. And that was that was the beginning. Uh, and, and once I got a taste, and I also, again, I, I, you know, in, in retrospect, I don't think I, I knew it at the time, but at the time I went, okay, so I'm actually, I am as good as they tell me I am. So that was you know, 30, 31 years old, someone took a, a punt on me and it was a, a game changer. I think this is so interesting because I was having a conversation with, with someone earlier and one of the topics was self-efficacy. And, you know, what you're describing here, there's really a combination of of self-efficacy and realizing your your own value and also this important person sponsoring you basically yep yeah and you know the things that i the things that i had to battle against at that time were entirely external because i actually my my self belief was there because and because you said god i could do a better job than those dills up there so I, I was entirely, entirely confident in my ability to do what is it. So I, I had no hesitation in saying yes. But the external factors that, oh, God, the social messaging, I'm a mum, who's going to take care of the children? Won't your children be unhappy? You know, that, so that stuff I really had to manage very, very well. Did I manage it well? I don't know, not, not so much. Um, I was in a very unhappy marriage as well, so my work was was an extremely, extremely important part of my life because it was such a, it was a place where I felt so valued and so respected, whereas that wasn't the case in my in my home life. So, you know, so there was there's a whole bunch of things going on here, but I, I the importance of someone spotting talent, leaders spotting talent, and telling the talent that they've been spotted and also what they need to do next because he didn't just then just catapult me into the job and go away you go Steve he then recruited me another two times I might add further on in my career so you know this was a person who was deadly serious about talent and deadly serious about actions following words but he would keep an eye on me and he'd say right let's check in where are you at how are you managing this relationship all the stuff a really good strategic mentor does and so I can never ever thank him enough for that. But I didn't have any, 
you know, it's so interesting, whether it was the arrogance of youth or whether I was just, what I just, interesting for someone who did really subscribe to the whole imposter syndrome stuff, I had none of it at the time. I mean, yeah, cool. I can do that. Oh, God, am I going to manage the logistics of childcare and telling my husband I'm going to take a full-time job and then managing my mother-in-law and, uh, you know, all the people who won't be happy for me. How am I going to manage their expectations? I had no drama about my own, my own ability. It was actually managing all the other BS that goes with being a woman in business, an ambitious woman in business because I was very, very ambitious. Right. Michelle, could you tell us about how you and Susan Colantuno met? I would love to because it's, again, you talk about those, those moments that matter in your life. That was a moment that mattered. I had made the decision, well, I'd already started my business and I was uh, working, working it as a side hustle whilst I was exiting my corporate career. Around that time, another consulting firm asked me to come on board with them once I was full-time in my business as a consultant, as a, as a leadership consultant, because they were setting up a gender equality or a, an advancing women practice. And I went, yep, sure, sounds good. And they said, right, so what we want you to do is um, this is the material we're going to use and we want you to meet the woman who, who is the founder of the organisation we're partnering with. That woman was Susan. The material was No Selling, No Walls, the missing 33% TED Talk. And I said, cool. So I, after some, um, you know, logistics and what have you, I went to New Jersey and sat with Susan for many, quite a few days, uh, observing some programs, uh, discussing stuff, and quite simply, you know, within an hour, <laughs> I think, oh, well, it was certainly an hour for me, I can't speak for Susan, within an hour I went, oh, my God, this woman is just amazing. I think I'd watched half a day. So I'd read all the books or read the books, watched half a day of, of a program being delivered to 30 women in, uh, in a, one of the big telcos in, in America. And I turned to Susan, I said, where were you 25 years ago when I really needed you? And she said, doesn't matter, I'm here now and away we go. So that started a friendship and obviously a business collaboration as well, because whilst I don't have anything to do with, I no longer work for that consulting firm. I now have a, I'm a direct partner with leading women for my gender equity business. And then Susan and I have stayed, she came out to Australia and we, Rhonda and I showed her around and we had a great time for a few days. And we just established a friendship and uh, two fierce feminists who, are, who share a mission to help women around the world reach their full potential. And how a career that soars came about was that, so Susan sold leading women and was supposed to retire. She, I don't think she's very good at retirement just quietly, um, but, you know, takes one to no one. And she, she contacted me and said, listen, there's this need in the world which I need to help satisfy and you need to help me with it. And it's the need is that there are many, many fabulous programs that I run for women in organisations, uh, myself and also with leading women and, and other organisations like that. 
she said, but there's so many women who are being left behind who don't have access to corporate learning. They don't have access to these corporate programs. They don't have access to this continuing professional development, which I talk about. We need to help them. And I went, where do I sign up? And <laughs> how are we going to do it? And, 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 and that's a career that saw. So Susan had done all the heavy lifting and setting up the platform and we are just taking it now with you, of course, from strength to strength. So what's our vision? Our vision is to help every woman who cannot, for a range of reasons, get access to professional development in her organisation to help her get access to that. So accessible, available, to have a community that she can lean on and and get advice from and you know it's 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 kind of the this is I'm really thinking out loud now Mel it's the leave no woman behind and for for me if I go back to my boxes and labels you know this is actually about saying just because you might work (laughs) it's just because you're a Michelle who left school at 15 and works in the local tire factory doesn't mean you should be excluded from content and mentoring and a network like we've got we want you to have access to that because your company may not believe in it have the resources whatever but that doesn't mean you should miss out because we want you to reach your full potential so it's no woman left behind just because you live in bangladesh and you're in a patriarchal society that says women occupy a certain role doesn't mean you shouldn't have access to this community just because you're a woman of colour who gets paid so significantly less or a disabled woman gets paid so significantly less and significantly less than a white woman that you have access to far less resources um, and have to fight so much harder to be recognised doesn't, you know, doesn't mean you should be excluded from these experiences. So that's, that's what it's all about is leave no woman behind. Which is yeah, I'm actually I just made that up, but that's and I think someone else <laughs> made that up. But anyway, that for me, it's it's a heart led, heart led project, and it is just so important. I agree. I'm excited to be involved. <laughs> oh, I'm excited you're involved as well because I'm I. What well, my love of learning does not does not diminish over time, and I'm learning new stuff from you all the time. You know what's really great though, Mel is. And I'm going to have a young woman on career Q&A next month but called Emily. She's 20, she's same age as my daughter, 26, and I learn from her every time I have a conversation. And you know what? Learning is not, just because I'm an elder of our community, uh, does not mean I'm not open to learning from young people. I'm learning from you and you're a young person. And the leadership manifests itself at every level and at every age. And we can learn so much we just open our minds and our hearts to the possibility that someone who doesn't look like us sound like us act like us could possibly teach me something thank you for joining us for this episode of lead to soar we sincerely appreciate your honest positive reviews you can leave questions at lead for michelle and mel to answer on future episodes until next time we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar Thank you.